Good evening, good afternoon. Welcome to The Daily Objective. I'm Jonathan Honig. We've got a really fascinating show planned for you today with a wonderful guest co-host, James Valiant, an author, a scholar. You know his work, The Passion of Ayn Rand's Critics. His more recent book is uh, Creating Christ, being made now as we speak into a, a documentary. So we're definitely going to keep an eye on that. Thank you, Jim, once again, uh, once again for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Hey, Jonathan. Well, we have a really interesting topic today, I think of interest to our viewers around the world, in the UK in particular, and that is, what's next for America? I mean, you know, essentially since its inception, America has been unique. This is a country not pledged to follow a Fuhrer, a king, uh, a religious figure, but really designed from its inception around the fundamental idea of individualism and individual rights. Uh, but we're moving in just the opposite direction. And my God, what a week, I mean, the impeachment now, the second time for the sitting president, President Trump, a, a, a physical assault and attack on the Capitol. We're looking forward to the inauguration next week. So to say it's a, a, a tumultuous time is an understatement. And America, as that beacon uh, for freedom and individualism around the world, it makes these ideas of what's next for America, I think, very important, uh, obviously, for what's next in the UK and what's next everywhere else. So we're going to get into, into it with you in the super chat as well. So don't be shy, throw us a couple of pounds uh, and, and we'll gladly you know, read and respond to some of your comments on the air. And James, I'd like to get into it for both the specifics of what's next for America, potential new COVID lockdowns, a new democratic president coming into uh, can do office and even more fundamentally, you know, Ayn Rand always talked about ideas moving the world. So, you know, what's next fundamentally in terms of the ideas animating American politics and animating the American sense of life. You know, is it going to continue? Has it going to continue down that road of individualism, capitalism, uh, individual rights, or is something changed here fundamentally in the last number of years that maybe puts that all in jeopardy? So uh, I'm going to throw it to you and we'll start with you. If, uh, you know, we were sitting in a bar right now, if the bars were still open, I said, you know, right. what's, what's next for America? What's in your crystal ball of what's next for America and freedom writ large? Freedom at large, and from an Ayn Rand perspective, it's pretty depressing because the ideas that are ascendant on the left have really sharply, you know, they're from the perhaps from the European perspective, America's really never had a real left, a real socialist left like like Europe has experienced in its past. Uh, it looks like America's trying to catch up. Its left is becoming more than just merely progressive. It's be, it's uh, toying with a word that used to be verboten in American politics, socialism itself, uh, and. Uh, there are Democratic voices saying, hey, I don't want to use that word socialism. It may have hurt us in the congressional elections. Uh, but nonetheless, there's a rising and it comes from the universities, just as Ayn Rand said. It's as though they, the, the very ideas of the university, the assault on free speech, for example, that you hear just recently from uh, Ocasio-Cortez. She said that we have to look at misinformation. You know, there's no right to misinformation. We have to take a hard look at media uh, for its misinformation. In other words, she's calling for censorship. The left has now abandoned any real what used to be American liberalism with its you know um, defense of free speech and that sort of thing. And what we're seeing now is really an authoritarian, uh, anti-liberty, 
you know, it, it's this Marxist uh, by way of intersection, intersectionality thing. Instead of Marxist class analysis, of course, we now have all these uh, overlapping uh, Venn diagrams of victimized groups. And if you, you know, how, the number of victimized groups that you can belong to is what's significant. And that ideology, in combination with a kind of irrational postmodernism, is really taking over the left in a huge way. And so from a long-term perspective, it's really depressing, especially depressing when you consider the right. Uh, and what Trump has just done, because, you know, it wouldn't be so awful if there was a viable opposition, if yes. there was a principled opposition, there'd at least be some hope, long-term hope. But what Trump has done to the GOP has utterly depressed me about there being some kind of free market opposition to these ideas, some kind of classical liberal opposition uh, to the rise of the new, uh, you know, in effect, fascist left. Uh, and uh, I don't see it. Trump has done just the opposite. Trump has taken the Republican Party away from the principles of liberty, away from at least, you know, the Republicans were no great shakes before this, but at least they would mouth, they would articulate certain ideas if they weren't always consistent with them, uh, that were a little more consistent with uh, the founding ideas of this country, individual liberty, the free market, but uh, with his uh, you know, tariffs, with his whole uh, spending and uh, job owning the Fed. I mean, the guy doesn't know free, the free market, you know, uh, you know, uh, at all. And he has exhibits no understanding of liberty. The way he was uh, talking nice and sending love letters to dictators uh, just was deeply, de you know, Ronald Reagan, when he opposed the, for all his faults in associating the Republican Party with the religious right, uh, uh, he called the, the Soviet Union an evil empire. When Donald Trump wanted to do, do business with someone, he cozied right up and wrote love letters and said, I really love Xi and he's a great guy and he's doing great things for China. Wow, you do not have to go that far, even if you want to strike a nuclear deal with someone. It was frankly disgusting. So the, the question is, can the Republican Party, in my view, purge itself of those Trump ideas and Trump elements? And there it's a still a very open question. I think Trump, to some extent, has hurt himself. The polls show that, you know, 80, 90 percent of the Republicans still support him. Uh, that's disturbing. But at least there were when this came along, there were a few. There were several brave uh, Republicans who are trying to step out of Trump's shadow. And to the extent that there are Republicans trying to, you know, purge the Republican Party of its worst Trumpist elements, um, I'm in favor of it. I don't know what the chances of that happening are. But really, uh, the idea of an opposition uh, to Biden and the progressive control now of Congress uh, is just that and hinges on just that, in my view. Uh, you know, in my world, Jim, uh, the investment world, there's an old saying that the trend is your friend. You've heard this before. <laughs> yes. And uh, it's true. You know, it, it happens to rhyme, but it, you know, it's also true that trends tend to persist. So when I'm asked this question of, you know, what, what, what's the trend these days, I think of it almost in twofold in terms of applying objectivism. In my life, the trend is really good. And in fact, the more I learn about objectivism, the more I integrate objectivist ideas into my life, into my business, really the better my life becomes. Uh, the trend for politics, I, I think certainly in America, unfortunately, as you alluded to, is, is absolutely abysmal. Uh, back in 2008, so many of the ideas, those explicitly social ideas that 10, 12 years ago were on the outside, uh, now are very much mainstream in American culture, mainstream in it. You know, even something, the idea of the guaranteed income, guaranteed right to health care, even 10, 12 years ago during that so-called Tea Party uprising, that was seen as, you know, pretty much out there. Uh, and, and capitalism really has become 
almost a dirty word. You know, I can't think back to what it was like in the 1950s and 60s when Ayn Rand really, along with Milton Friedman, but I think primarily Ayn Rand, you know, legitimized and popularized that term. You know, I think it's getting to that point now where, you know, capitalism, at least in America, is a, when you say you're a capitalist and they say, oh, I know what you are. You're a globalist. And there's that right. package deal. So, right. you know, just the, the, you're the a very- You're cronyist, right. I mean, it's, uh, and, and there's, you know, so much to analyze here. Rand always talked about its ideas moving the world. So, and you know, for do. me, I'm trying to a- a- apply her ideas and bettering my life. I'm enjoying my life now more than I ever am. But when analyzing the politics, I mean, so much of what not only Rand talked about, but I think Dr. Peacock talked about, you know, the dim hypothesis, uh, it's not an easy book. It's not a difficult book. But I think his observation that, you know, religion and the evil of religion I, I see it in terms of Trumpers and their adoration of a, of a man and the left and their adoration, for example, of environmentalism. I mean, there's religious fervor oh, in their self-sacrifice yeah. to environmentalism. environmentalism. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the, the trend of the, the political realm is terrible. It's going to be changed, in my opinion, however, not by changing the politicians. You know, we had a question on our, uh, our uh, chat here, so, you know, hoping for some practical ideas and what we can do about it besides supporting Ayn Rand Center UK. And I wish there was some kind of quick fix to get the type of politicians we want in the United Kingdom or in the United States. But right. it starts with changing ideas, that starts with changing the ideas of young people. And that's why supporting things like the Ayn Rand Center UK, Prometheus and Ayn Rand Institute are so important. We're getting these ideas into young people's hands. That's what changes the future. I, I absolutely agree. And it is the universities that are the problem here. I mean, AOC's call, for example, for censorship, she wants the whole country to look like most university campuses in America do, where there's strict, you know, you really you, a, a student with any idea that's unconventional is taking his career in his hands or her career in her hands. Yeah, and, by saying and, and, something Josh, different. and Josh, and Josh Hawley wants the scripture or a, a thing of Christ or something else out there in the other case. And, and, you know, you're not supposed to, I don't want to be a downer, Jim, but you know, our ideas, laissez-faire capitalism, I feel now it's like what, you guys don't know this in the UK, but Lyndon LaRouche, you know, kind of this crackpot, we're like LaRouche now, you know, we're like this, oh, laissez-faire capitalism, are you crazy? You know, we're right. seen now as on the real outside, like, oh, right. we never considered it, that. It's hard to imagine that Henry Hazlitt at one time, Henry Hazlitt, a consistent advocate of classical liberalism and the free market. E- was Economics was, in one lesson. Yeah, the leading economic editorialist in America. He wrote most of the economic editorials for the New York Times for in the late 30s and early 40s. All the unsigned economic editorials, he wrote like 90% of them. And then he wrote a signed column for them as well. It's hard to imagine that America's leading, most respected newspaper was at one time (laughs) uh, led in its economic editorial policy by someone like Henry Hazlitt. The world, America has declined in a profound way in that respect. It is hard to imagine a Barry Goldwater even being able to be elected in the Republican Party because Trumpism is so, you know, veered off from it so badly. Uh, And you're absolutely right. There's a certain kind of tribalism and emotionalism, which can only be connected to kind of mysticism, Um, honestly. And, you know, what's even more disturbing than just the right, because we're used to that, the right, you know, talking religion all the time. There's a a debate now. The, The left has joined them in this debate. No, we own. Christian, Christian ethics. We own the Sermon on the Mount. Nancy Pelosi says, if you guys, if you evangelicals were really good Christians, you'd join us in our welfare state socialism. 
So who owns yeah. the, you see, and Christianity, you're right. You know, I, I would be less uh, concerned about the decline in sectarian Christianity and more concerned about the general rise of mysticism and respect for this Christian altruist collectivist ethics. Because I see that rising. Because I see, as you say, religious thinking. Trump populism is a kind of uh, yeah. personality yeah. I mean, so cult. And that person, yeah, personality cult evokes a kind of mysticism. Uh, the, as we were saying before this, if you really could believe and be certain that Trump won this last election in a landslide, you, you know, you probably believe, you know, you could probably have visions of Jesus and speak in tongues or something. So, uh, uh, and, and, Rand, and, you know, Rand talked about this, you know, primacy of consciousness versus primacy of existence. For me, you know, basically, it, except when I'm, evading uh you know primacy of existence is pretty much self-evident it <laughs> is what is in front of you and it's always it's it's a mystery to me now how many people are able to so consistently evade reality in the church i was always understand it you know look i was taken to synagogue it was always like wink wink nod nod god god <laughs> wants you to do this but now people actually believe their own consciousness. They've almost tuned out reality, not well, just know, in the, the religion, but we, in politics as well. We very often get the response from either side that we're being gaslighted, right? You know, there's that old Ingrid Bergman movie where poor Ingrid Bergman, uh, Charles Boyer was driving, you know, trying to make her think she was crazy by giving, you know, presenting all these alternate facts and you're the crazy one, you're the crazy one. And so we have this concept gaslighting. And so you think to yourself, okay, if, if the Democrats are trying to convince us that, you know, uh, uh, something really absurd, uh, it's called gaslighting. But at another level, I think some of these people sincerely believe it. They've convinced themselves. And I think it does stem from a sort of primacy of consciousness thing. Their feelings do inform their ideas. And if they have a strong feeling, they really do believe. They honestly do believe that, <clears throat> you know, I think that, for example, one great example uh, 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 is this whole COVID thing. The nature of what so many of the critics of the lockdowns I've been saying we're being gaslighted. In other words, we they're, they're panicking us with these daily body counts, not giving us a proper context with other diseases, right? Uh, and not giving us the body counts and the economic uh, side from the lockdowns. The other side of the equation is being ignored. So in a sense, one could say we're being gaslighted. But there are, and this is perhaps the most disturbing thing, is the degree to which Americans simply went along with these almost totalitarian lockdowns. I mean, half the population by looking at these polls are perfectly willing to do whatever it is that the politicians tell them is appropriate uh, for COVID lockdowns. We, we knew by summer, we had data that the schools should not have been locked down. There was never any data that said outdoor dining and outdoor activities were particularly dangerous. The, a lot of these lockdown rules were simply arbitrary from the start. And so, yeah, there was no science behind them. And in the name of science, now, I do believe that there were some Democratic politicians who smelled the blood in the water, if, it, if you will, with COVID deaths and a way to get Trump. And so they were perfectly happy to, for, to shut down the economy 
and have the economy suffer. And I think Cuomo's recent admission that, oh, no, 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 we've got to, we can't keep the economy locked down. Suddenly, last month, just last month, he was telling us we have to prepare for an even worse lockdown. And now the governor of New York State is saying, oh, no, we can't do that anymore. What, days before the inauguration? I think they know that they can't have a tank economy and all that misery and Biden and have it not affect Biden as well. So I have a funny feeling that uh, COVID will get miraculously better. Now they're stuck with their narrative for a certain period of time, uh, uh, even with Cuomo Zam and clunkiness there. I think they are still stuck with the narrative to some extent. I think we'll have Biden's hundred day. I mean, why is it a hundred days to wear a mask? Biden's going to come in and say for a hundred days, all Americans should wear a mask. Oh, why shouldn't it be 50 or 200 or 500? No, no. For this perfectly arbitrary, symbol, purely symbolic, 100 days, you'll have us wear masks. But I have a feeling COVID will fade. Well, Just I mean, and, 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 and James, to that earlier point, I mean, think about uh, as against, let's say, the global financial crisis of, of now 10, 12 years ago, there no. are no voices purporting any type of advocacy for a free market solution. Uh, right. In any of it, including the you know the whole vaccine distribution, which has been a, <sighs> a complete mess here in, in the U.S. When it's the obvious solution, they're doing yeah. all these complex regulations to prioritize, and complying with those regulations is, uh, as of course we could have predicted, the very thing that's going to prevent the vaccines from actually getting into people's arms. And, and thank you, Mary Eileen. I'll just say thank you, Mary Eileen, for your super chat. We invite any super chats. It goes a long way to supporting us here at the Ayn Rand Center UK. We're among the only voices, really true voices, for laissez-faire, cap- uh, laissez-faire capitalism. Um, that's going to fix the world. That's going to fix the United Kingdom. Certainly, what's going to fix America. And James, as you were saying, you know, you're not, you haven't seen it applied anywhere when it comes to what's been a very painful and, and disastrous COVID well, even response. Back in, in, in uh, 2008, when we had the economic crisis, perhaps the most distressing part was that the Republican president of the United States said, and I quote, I am not an Ayn Rand Republican. I'm not an Ayn Rand free marketeer. We're going to bail out Wall Street. Uh, they're too big to fail, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and never really getting to the underlying crises, uh, the cause of the crises, in effect, a crisis of the welfare state, government propping up home ownership. And, and, and today's Republicans saying that they're, this is a quoting now, I'm not for free trade. I'm for fair trade. Fair Which trade. If you know any, anything about American politics, that was the rallying cry of, John Edwards and every other Democrat for years. They're not for free. So oh, your labor Democrats like Joe Biden were advocating America first by America in that sense, in the economic nationalist sense. That was their program. And now apparently it's the Republican program. And that's why, I mean, in a weird way, you know, what's the trend? And, you know, I had a, a client text me earlier this week and he said, I feel a lot better now that I turned off the news. You know, we're yes. here to help analyze politics, analyze the current world, hopefully bring some of Ayn Rand's ideas and help apply them. Um, but they're not just about politics. I think there's too much focus, uh, James, in my opinion, and you're, not, you're really an Ayn Rand scholar, but there's so much focus put on Ayn Rand in terms of politics. To me, politics around the world is a shit show. It's not gonna be fixed in my lifetime. So I just enjoy right. applying her ideas to my life, bettering my life, I'm happier now than I've ever been. I'm enjoying oh, life. I'm wealthier man. now than I've ever been. Right. And There's so, so many more important think, things in that's life. That's it. That's it. So you politics. make your trend a good one. Make whatever no. the world's trend is. Make your I, trend I, I have. I'm fortunate enough to have found a real soulmate, the love of my life, and spending time with her. 
I've found friends that I can trust, who I really share my deepest values with. Those are the things that make my life really valuable and my own work, my own work, my own work in figuring out history and historiography and the origins of Christianity and religion. If I can satisfy myself, see, for me, it's the work itself, like Howard Rourke. Uh, you know, when I wrote Creating Christ, I really thought that it was so radical an idea that it would have no effect in my lifetime. The idea that someone is making a documentary series out of it simply blows my mind right now because it was the moment I actually got that book in my hand that I was fully satisfied. I had this weird feeling that, it's, and, you, and the feeling that I had was, uh, I can die a happy man and I can go on living. Is to say that simultaneously well, because I was so proud me. of that thing. And well, that kind of achievement, I thought maybe a hundred years from now they'd dust it off and find some value in it. I'd never see it. So that's, you know, find work you find enjoyable. Find people that you share values with. Those are the important things in life. Uh, What's well, yeah. the comment that Ray, I believe Dr. Peikoff told a story about how getting the first copy of Atlas Shrugged in her hand and Rand saying something oh, they like- Oh, walking I, down Fifth Avenue. And tell the story. Store. Leonard Peikoff and Ayn Rand were just after, I think it was literally the autumn of 1957, Alice Shrugged had just hit the New York bookstores and they were walking down Fifth Avenue, passing a bookstore. And there it was prominently featured in the front window. Her book, her magnum opus, prominently featured in the, in the front window. <clears throat> um, she said something. I'm trying to remember the exact quote, but like, the, the one part that was exact, the exact, I know I got exactly. It's worth it. Don't give up. Something like that. Yes. It's yes. worth Don't it. Don't ever give up. On Don't ever give up. It's worth it. And when you think about her struggle, when you think about her whole life story, when you think about the vicious critics and her struggle through the depression and the people who tried to, she had Fountainhead was rejected by 12 publishers. She escaped from the bloody Soviet Union. So when you think about her whole life and the struggle it took to get to Atlas Shrugged, it's a story that kind of brings tears to your eyes because she did have an enormous struggle. And consider the work the monumental achievement Atlas Shrugged was. It took her years uh, and the most intense mental effort. But there it was. It existed. And she knew, she knew that the New York critics were going to be hostile. She knew that the left was going to come down on her hard. Of course, she knew all that. But still, she said, it's worth it. And it's true. It's the satisfaction we get from our own work that is the most important thing. Um, and finding other you know, even if it's just a few other people that we can really share our values with. Um, that, you know, getting back to politics, I could only also put a, maybe a little bit of a silver lining on things. People were distressed that when the Senate was taken by the Democrats because of the Georgia runoffs, which I blame Trump for, as you know, um, he depressed the, the Republican turnout there. Um, and prevented us from having divided government, which I like <laughs> in general. But uh, uh, it's a 50-50 Senate, so it couldn't be closer. And the House is close, too. The Republicans made significant gains in the House. So it's at a narrow, narrowest margin. It's been at since before I was born, <coughs> right? <laughs> That's there's some time. So it's a very, very narrow situation. In the Senate, they have this filibuster rule, which means that for any apart from a presidential nomination, any legislation can be opposed by only 40 senators. And all it takes is 40 senators, and the conservative Republicans are plenty uh, there, to stop, to put the kibosh completely on any new legislation. 
And uh, of course, the Democrats have said that they want to get rid of this filibuster rule. But Senator Manchin, a Democrat, remember, it's 50-50. They cannot lose one Democrat. Let me suggest that the good people of West Virginia are some of the most influential and powerful people in America right now, because Manchin will be having his ear to the ground on whether he can get reelected in a very conservative state like West Virginia. He's promised not to vote against the filibuster, to keep the filibuster. If that's the case, then most of these uh, really uh, radical proposals that the Democrats have, for example, uh, uh, packing the Senate, uh, statehood for uh, Puerto Rico and D.C., uh, all these other radical big tax increases, um, uh, changes in the uh, Trump uh, uh, regulatory stuff, all that, all these goals, that Green New Deal, all these goals that they have really hinge on whether the filibuster stays in the Senate and whether the Republicans can put the kibosh on it. Now, you can expect Schumer down the road to say, well, the Republicans are being obstructionists. And so I really think it'll turn on each of the issues and whether or not Senator Manchkin can face the voters of West Virginia and say, no, I'm sticking true to my uh, sure. uh, a promise to keep the filibuster. If that makes yeah, sense. And, and, and maybe pick up the mantle of obstructionists. I mean, talk about, a, um, you know, Ayn Rand talked about extremism as being, um, what am I thinking? Not a smear term, a... Um, yeah, well, uh, it is. Extremism is an anti-concept and a smear. Yeah, it's an anti-concept, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, an obstructionist of, of, of terrible anti-capitalist, anti-individualist ideas anti-American ideas, ultimately. Uh, and, and Jim, I'll pick up quickly and, and invite any last, uh, last super chats on the moment we have left. Very briefly on what you said about your own accomplishments, whether it's you know, finishing your book and the, the self-esteem that you felt. I mean, when I look around the objectivist movement, there's so many people doing so many amazing things across the gamut from, you know, on the low end, like starting a, a, an exercise habit or, you know, kicking a substance abuse or getting married or uh, you know, up at, I won't say the high end, but some pretty amazing things like, you know, Blake Scholl from Boom creating a supersonic, you know, jet. So, you know, find whatever, my two cents is find whatever your context is and whatever your world is. If it's just getting up off the mat, taking that first step to, you know, creating space flight you know, every day that we're alive is such a gift, such an opportunity. And, and I think that's the real power of Ayn Rand, not fixing Washington or Westminster. It's, that's never going to change in our lifetime, ultimately. And I would just add living, that, your, living the best of your yeah. life. And I would just add that as a secondary effect of that, by just doing Creating Christ, and I'm talking to a diff whole different world, non-objectivists, people who are Bible scholars, uh, Christians who are coming off of it, they're questioning their faith. I'm finding a whole new market for people who are interested in philosophical ideas, ideas like Ayn Rand's. And so just by doing what I love to do, I'm actually helping the cause without even knowing it or intending. And we do selfish, that. What a selfish Do, do what you, you love. Do what you love. Achieve something, you know, and it doesn't really matter where you do it. It will have an impact and it'll actually help the cause, whether you know it or not. And thank you to Zalmi T for a generous contribution. And thank you to all of our viewers and listeners from around the world. And thank you especially to, to James Valiant, who always had such an interesting perspective. His books, among other published works, Passion of Ayn Rand's Critics, Creating Christ, Watch for the Doc. Well, I'm sure we're going to talk about it in, in, in great length. So like, subscribe, share, and we'll see you right back here next week for more of The Daily Objective. Have a great weekend. Thank you.